1: Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on New Books in Intellectual History, we have Dr. Tony Bolden, an associate professor of African and African American Studies at the University of Kansas and the author of Groove Theory, The Blues Foundation of Funk, published by the University Press of Mississippi this year. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bolden.
0: Well, welcome, uh, Professor Williams, and thank you for having me.
1: Oh, you are, That th- thank you for agreeing to uh, sit for this interview. Groove Theory is an enlightening narrative on funk music and African-American history and culture. First, we will discuss Dr. Bolden's biography and some thoughts on intellectual history in general, and then we will Engage in a more detailed discussion of his book, Groove Theory. Doctor Boland, tell us uh, some more uh, about your educational research and teaching background.
0: Okay, well, um, I'm a little different from most uh, academics um, in a number of ways, but uh, so I, I'm, I'm actually from um, the San Francisco Oakland. Um, bay area but um i i my intellectual background is really in in the deep south in particularly in in New orleans and I was an artist uh, before I became a scholar so i was um my first models you know what I knew of as intellectuals were writers and this was you know they weren't Today, people say creative writers, but they were they were students of the world and, and ideas. So they were uh, writers. This was uh, called the Congo Square Writers Union in New Orleans. And um, that was an outgrowth of Black Arts South, which was another earlier writers collective. And that was the writers workshop for the Free Southern Theater. Um established by uh, John O'Neill, Doris Derby, and Gilbert Moses in, uh, during the Civil Rights Movement in Mississippi in 1964, I think. So, um, so I was really active as, as, uh, in theater and, and as a writer. And so my scholarship really comes out of that. And my first book uh, was called Afro Blue um, was really, uh, so, a so study of, of African-American poetry and, and music. And so those, those writers, um, and, um, the actors that I, that I knew were, uh, you know, sort of, um, those ideas really reflected in, in the first book that I wrote.
1: So I want to back up for a minute and, Go back to this question, as you said, you had a sort of an unorthodox, um, you know, entry into, you know, writing, teaching. And so what made you turn, <laughs> what made you decide to uh, become a professor? If you, It seems like you were uh, among writers and intellectuals already. Producing, well,
0: yeah. Well, they were really, um, you know, like one of them included uh, the civil rights lawyer Lois Eli. Uh, he he passed not too long ago, but you can look him up. And um, you know, I remember we we went to a book talk one time after a professor. I went to Dillard University in New Orleans, and this guy had actually taught a class taught a class that I was in. Monty Pulaski, I think his name was. He had just published his book, and you know, the, the lawyer knew more, you know, about, about the book, and they had to shut the, the talk down. So they were really people who read and knew a great deal. So the thing about me was, um, so the whole thing about the professor, it's interesting you asked me that. Um, actually, what happened at that time, there was a whole big thing. So, you know, the writers group was connected to Um, was connected to uh, a larger alliance called, you know, Black Cultural Alliance that had a lot of these independent Black theaters, community-based, you know, groups in the South. And we would meet twice a year for performance conferences, et cetera. But basically what happened is um, a lot of the opportunities started to dry up. And one of the, you know, one of my, you know, three mentors uh, is a poet, scholar named Jerry Ward. Um, he, a lot of us, all of us who come out of the South, uh, Howard Ramsey, Charlie, Charlie Braxton, we were all, you know, mentored by, by Jerry. But, you yeah. know, Jerry had seen me one day um, and, you know, he, he speaks in a very proper voice. And, you know, he says, Tony, you know. Um I'm concerned about my English majors. What are you going to do, Tony? You know, I I don't want to do anything. (laughs) All I want to do is read and write. And so he said, well, you know, Tony, you know, you should go pick up a master's degree somewhere. So I then went and got a a master's degree in what was then called um, Afro-American studies. But I actually decided to do the doctorate program when it, just became clear that, um, you know, that there really weren't alternative ways to, to develop, you know, um, and there weren't, um, a lot of opportunities to publish and, and do things. So, so actually that was, you know, so that's the best, the honest answer to your question is that I became an academic. Um, that was sort of the, you know, that was, that was the consolation prize for me. Mm -hmm. So.
1: Well, it speaks to, I think your work in many ways in this whole notion of what do we mean when we say the term intellectual? And uh, I also wanted to um, ask you about your teaching. What courses do you currently teach?
0: Well, I am completing um, um, a course that I have taught since I've been here at the University of Kansas, which is the introduction uh, to African-American literature, fun course, um, you know, and students usually enjoy that. Um, I'm also teaching, um, finishing up a course that I've taught for the first time here uh, called um, Black Music as Literature. So I'm actually reading we're we are actually um treating the the songwriters as writers as poets in and of themselves as storytellers in and of themselves and that covers um rhythm and blues I actually started with the blues um, but um we ended up with with hip hop so we get blues a little bit of blues um um, you know, rhythm and blues, particularly, um a lot of a lot of prints, um, which resonates with a lot of my kids here. And then we shifted, you know, to hip hop. Um, so that those are the two courses.
1: Mm, sounds um interesting. and I if I would agree with you. I think these uh, young folks would probably definitely uh gravitate to courses like uh the ones that you teach. Now um, This raises a question. Our next question is, uh, how did you as a scholar of literary studies uh, come to study American music culture? And it seems like you answered a part of that. But say some more about this relationship between literature and song lyrics. I mean, was it, um, I think Bob Dylan won the um, Nobel Prize for Literature. So there's some obvious um, uh, overlapping dimensions between these two sort of genres of art. So tell us a little bit more about, and you get into this in your book, which we're going to revisit part of this question, um, the relationship between literature and song lyrics.
0: Yes. Well, okay. So for me, that begins early on. So my very first, the very first time I met, I was the baby of the group. So I was the youngest member of Congo Square Writers Union. But the very first time I went to uh, one of the meetings, after that, we went to what... uh, uh, Now it's closed, but uh, a very famous and very important uh, blues club in New Orleans called Dorothy's Medallion. And, um, you know, the then... um, Walter Washington, he called himself Wolfman, but he was he was in his prime then. Uh, there was also a singer uh, named Johnny Adams and uh, who was featured. Um, these were every weekend and I, actually this may have, I don't know if this was during the weekend or or what, but they were regularly featured. There was also a, a plus size a new dancer that was featured. This was a real live blues club. They don't make these anymore. These are all black folk, no white folk in there. And um, and and so I was I, it was very clear to me, became, you know, clear to me, you know, very early on that music was significant to um, writers. Uh, who had this sensibility it's a bit different from they're very different in, in fact from the uh, the creative writers of today that you know you, you know people who go to school um, to write but uh, very different sensibility at, at you know uh, different audience um, different value system um, different aesthetics and so um, in order for and and I was already interested in music, you know. Um part of what I talk about in the book, the very first story that I tell, you know, is before I get to New Orleans. But what these older people taught me was that in order to understand to have a really firm grasp of of you know what what they were doing and and what how they envisioned literature and black culture and the precepts uh, therein, you, you needed to have some real understanding of of, of blues in particular, and so um, so that's that's what happened. So that's like at the outset. And um, my so what happens to me or with me is that um, I, I published uh, Afro Blues, my first book. And I thought the book what I what I would set out to do was demonstrate that there was a kind of relationship, you know, a stylistic relationship between, you know, um, a certain trajectory of black poetry in the twentieth century and and music making and the music styles, etc., blues, jazz, in particular. at the end of the book, though, uh, I realized that there was something more. So um, essentially, you know, I had figured that there were these correlations and I had documented those, but I said to myself, if the, muse, if, the, if the poetry is reflecting ideas that are expressed and inscribed in the music, If that's how I, you know, explain the poetry, then what's the explanation philosophically for the music? Unless we just want to say, you know, all Black people got rhythm, right? You know, that's the, you know, but I mean, you know, philosophically, how do you account for it? And that's what, you know, um, I began to think about funk. So there are actually references to funk. In Afro Blue, that you know, you know, if you actually know how to look for it, but that's how I became interested, you know, in funk. So for me, groove theory is like you know philosophy for the people, and um, that's. But it was a long, a long. So it took a long time because I be I actually had to become uh familiar with uh, musicology, in order for me to provide um, explanations for you know what was happening on a theoretical conceptual level, I needed to actually teach myself you know musicology and ethnomusicology because my background was my, my PhD is in literature. Uh, you know, I can't play. I can't play a single <laughs> instrument, so, you know, so that, so I had to teach my, and a lot of, a lot of funk is actually philosophical too, in and of itself, you know? Um, so it was really, it was, it was a really difficult, you know, uh, book to write.
1: Yeah, you. I mean, I definitely um, appreciate, uh... I I see it as a work of intellectual history and that's why but it's more than that it's many things right it's music history it's intellectual history it's, it's it's black cultural history and um I think that's the broad appeal I mean this book could easily be it could easily be used in several courses not only literary uh or literature courses but history I think music courses and um so this brings us to this 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 phrase of uh, intellectual, and uh, in which you use in part of the title of uh, one of the chapters. Um, how would you d- define the term intellectual? Well, um,
0: basically, that which has to do with the generation of ideas and and you know and understanding. It's, it's interesting that you asked me that because um, I do see, I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, probably distinguishes my discussion of funk of, from, you know, some of the other scholars like, um, although Ricky Henderson, the pioneering scholar, you know, does engage with it. Um, and give you you know an introduction, but there's also Francesca Royster and uh, Lamanda uh, Horton Stallings. Uh, but I actually do uh, try to ask how is it that we began to use this term how does this term come to mean what what it means to us now and how does how is it that you know funk artists, Came to use that term of all of the words in the English language to um, to to you know describe what what they did, and um, so it is you know in a very real sense um, you know a, a variation or a species of what I might call black vernacular, you know, um, intellectual history, and part of the part of you know, the, the, um, the project was to redefine, um, you know, what we understand as intellectual. So when you look the word up, because I, you know, when you asked me that question, I went, I said, well, I'm going to see what, 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 what the definition is. So it says something about, you know, that relating to intellect and all of that and the understanding, but then the, the definition that it gives you, that I saw, um, basically pit, uh, or sort of distinguish between feeling and, and rationality between thinking and feeling. So, so that, so that feeling was one thing and thinking that is, you know, intellect is like opposed to that. And within the context of funk or, you know, more specifically blue funk, you know, um, that comes out of the blues tradition, it was just the opposite. In order to understand how to play, in order to to play the the music the way it was supposed to be played, um, you had to feel. Uh, There had to be body movement, you know, and so... Um so yeah, in a very real sense it is, you know, intellectual history. But um but I, I treat all of these um artists um as as organic intellectuals in their own right.
1: Yeah, and I think the point to be made is the definition comes out of a Eurocentric framework. Mm-hmm. And when we're talking about African American intellectual history, we're talking about a distinct tradition of knowledge production and so the eurocentric definition does not necessarily fit you know what we're trying to get at when we're looking at a distinctive tradition of people who are producing knowledge um, but at the same time have an affinity for the value of um, emotion Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what we miss, I think, when we say, well, intellectuals are people who have three and four college degrees and they mm-hmm. write things down. Mm-hmm. In a Eurocentric sense, that might be the case. Um, but when we look at uh, there are many types or forms of intellectualism and uh, we might say, well, traditional intellectual versus organic versus activist mm-hmm. and they overlap. Mm-hmm. Um And so my next question for you is, well, what connection does your work have to intellectual history? We got into that a little bit already, but would you, would you define your work, this book, Groove Theory as a, as an intellectual history of the funk? Um,
0: well, that's sort of how the, the press, um, you know, engages it. You know, I don't, it's, I just say it's philosophy. My, my, my characterization is that it's philosophy for the people. That's you know, and in <clears throat> and in um, in in that context, you get um, a number of things. So there is clearly, um, you know, a, a kind of study of the concept itself. That is maybe the glue that that you know of the book. You know that I. I actually approach it as a as a as a history of the concept, but in order to tell that story, there are a number of other things. So one of the subtexts uh, of the book, you know, that I don't talk about, that I, don't, I didn't mention, is that I also see um, the songwriters as poets. You know, uh, I think George is a great poet. You know, uh, Slide. So Stone actually referred to himself as a poet. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean, obviously, what, you know, people who who write books, that kind of poet, but sort of like you said, you know, the different types of poetry. And our ideas of what that meant didn't really change until this became professionalized. There's a really, Important book called uh, "The Understanding of New Black Poetry," uh, actually written by the most, probably arguably the most influential poetry uh, critic, uh, you know, of all, and um, name is Stephen Henderson, and he actually includes song lyrics in 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 the anthology. So, but so yeah, you get a bunch of different things. You get you get analysis, you get uh, interpretations of the songs, you get histories, you get uh a uh, political you know um, uh, discussions in relation to to the songs um so so that's why I just say it's philosophy for the people
1: yeah and it, I mean it gets into history of ideas it I think the group theory does a lot of things at once which is fantastic it it does a history of ideas and individuals that you you uh, Hold up as organic intellectuals and uh, knowledge production. It gets into so many different uh, facets of intellectual history that it has a series of, of subfields within it. But it seems like you're engaging in uh, multiple subfields at once within the context of the book, which makes it, I think, um, ever more fascinating. Um, let's turn to the book more uh, directly. And uh, tell our listeners about the scope and structure of your book and what you mean by the blues foundations of funk okay well
0: so the bu- the book is divided into um, two sections so I use the metaphor uh, of an old you know LP so you have side a and you have side B so. Um, Side A is uh, groove theory, um, conceptual foundations of funk, and um, the uh, section two is um, sort of uh, black um, oh shucks, I forgot my own section, but um, <laughs> so um, thing is devotion. Um, Blue Funk and the Black Fantastic, but there's also an intro and outro. So the book has um, the intro, three three chapters. Um, one is uh, you know a sort of the first chapter talks about the um, sort of the the epistemology of funk, which would, that was actually the first sub subtitle, and I was told, "Well, no, you can't say that because uh, nobody will know what you mean." But so epistemology is the production of knowledge. That's what you've been talking about, and so essentially, the first chapter is the the sort of how to from the standpoint of the musicians themselves, and I talk a lot about the role. Of feeling, um, the funk uh, principle is uh, the interplay between motion and emotion. Like George Clinton says, uh, defines funk is uh, if it makes you shake your rump, it's it's the funk. So uh, you know, it's, it's an analysis of you know the, that kind of interplay uh, between motion and emotion, and um, you know, I use various, you know, songs um and um and scholarship to you know talk about that. The next chapter um is called uh blue funk the ugly beauty of stank.
1: And yeah, I love your subtitles.
0: <laughs> so um so this is the, this is the story of how the concept um you know, is developed within blues culture. So, for example, because we all think of it um, as something that happened in the 1970s and it's really an old concept uh, for people listening. You know, the great blues artist uh, Bessie Smith, um, you know, was uh, apparently going to uh, a party in, in her honor. And, um, she was with, uh, two of her girlfriends and she, you know, in the old days they would hire piano players, you know, to play at, at the party. And so she heard the piano player and she's, she's digging that sound and she turns to one of her friends, she said, the funk is flying, you know? And so, um, and even before that, the term was used. So, um, so, so chapter two is an analysis of how the concept gets developed um, in blues songs um, by you know jazz musicians who extend the blues music who extend the blues idiom or the blues tradition, um, and so it's sort of like pre-funk, if you will. And then the third chapter deals with Sly Stone and you know his his contribution. He's a really important figure in a lot of different ways. And so the next half deals with very specific artists. Um, so there's Shaka Khan, um, Gil Scott Heron, and Betty Davis. And in the outro, briefly, I discuss um, Michelle and Deggie Cello and uh, some of my, you know, just a brief kind of um comment on the on on the meaning of the term now and the implications that that artists are still using this term uh, and, and everyday people you know in the 21st century
1: so let's go back uh, to the beginning of your book and you know where you're defining the term funk and you use this phrase aesthetical practice and um can you elaborate on that a little bit in terms of your definition of the funk in this phrase, aesthetical practice?
0: Um, I think that's one of the people who uh, wrote the blurb, but I think what she meant by that is um, so. So there are very specific. Um, there's a broader funk aesthetic. That's that's where I'm going. I think that's what she's connecting with. So. That there is a that the music of the seventies of of Betty Davis, of James Brown, of Parliament Funkadelic, Earth, Wind and Fire, that 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 while these these musicians were, you know, sort of um emblematic, if you will, of the meaning of funk, the concept is is, is really broad, and in fact, one way to think about the importance of, of you know, these musicians, we tend to think of music primarily in terms of entertainment, um, but I think it's um, maybe a better way or another way at least of, of thinking about it is as the centerpieces or the central figures of an aesthetic practice or an aesthetic framework so that you can uh, observe in other artistic mediums. So, uh, you know, during the early late 60s, early 70s, and, and thereafter to some degree, you, you can see the principles, precepts, or images, or allusions to funk music, Uh, so in other words, concepts in the music and or figures associated with it in a number of different artistic forms, visual art, that is to say painting, um, um, literature, um, you know, and obviously dancing, But, but specifically visual art and, and literature. So that's what I what we mean by I talk about a cultural aesthetic that um, there's actually a way to pinpoint uh, the, the specific principles and, and images that are related to funk that we can observe in um, in black writing for example and um, you know in certain certain cases, um visual black visual art as well so um yeah,
1: yeah so you you've been um, you know making this uh point about the relationship between literature and music i want to go back for a second to your mentioning of the black arts movement and what the artists were up to um during that era and i think a lot of people feel to re- maybe realize or recognize that performance art poetry is coming out of the BAM, the black, you know, um, arts movement where these poets are performing as if they were musicians and they have these compositions that are set to music in which they're performing on stage. And suddenly now, you know, performance art poetry is all the rage, but it comes out of this. I think what you're arguing this is, you know, tradition of Black aesthetics, the Black aesthetic tradition is producing performance art poetry from the band.
0: Well, yeah, I think, see, this is why I think funk is really important for us, because it it, it actually has to do with another way of, it has to do with the way that, that people who are influenced, I'll put it that way, because you can be from any culture, but, you know, the ways that we are influenced by African-derived, um, you know, uh, philosophies and, and aesthetics. So, um, so the music was always there. You know, it's just that. Um, so, for example, uh, Sterling Brown, um, Langston Hughes, <coughs> they were always doing it. You know, uh, experimenting with music. Um, you know, Margaret Walker's "For My People." You can, you, you know, that's very much like a sermon, for example, in terms of the rhythmic pattern. Um, her father was a was 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 a preacher, I'm pretty sure. So, um, it's always been there. What happens in the '60s has to do with uh, a determination um, to address black people specifically. Right, much more in a much more conscious way than had been done before. That becomes the primary audience, and they saw that, you know, the preachers and and the musicians like James Brown, they had these audiences. So, um, and and these were people who had grown up in the neighborhoods themselves. So, it, that was the attempt. Um, But there was a backlash against that because that wasn't if, you know, literature is supposed to be ABC, not D, if you will. Right. And um, so I think it's interesting that uh, performance poetry is sort of coming back, so to speak, because uh, of the time um, that we're in and all of the kinds of uh, issues that are. That are being raised, um, but yeah, you, you know, it. I interestingly enough, I think the connection with funk, because um, all of this comes around uh, a time when you've got the black uh, black aesthetic, the black power movement. Um, what's interesting about funk is that it was um, that it came from the streets, you know. Uh, the funky Broadway, which was a dance before the song that was recorded 1966. So that that, that was a dance that, that happened at that point. It's at the same time, uh, when, what, the next year, um, the, the book Black Power by Ch- Charles Hamilton and uh, Kwame Ture comes out, um, and um, so, ni- so, so, 1967 is when the Funky Broadway uh, song is is a hit, and then the next year, uh, the, another dance called the Funky Four Corners um, is popular, and Dan- James Brown used to dance that. It was very popular in black communities. So, and before this, that word was stigmatized; you weren't supposed to say it. Um, so, uh, I, I like to think that. Uh, that the funk aesthetic, if you will, um, comes about because you know the dancers and young musicians like Sly Stone, who began using it in his liner notes to describe um, his bass player Larry Graham, um, that these young artists, these young dancers and musicians um, decided to to uh, that this was their interpretation. Of black is beautiful, you know, because you know, before this, if you call somebody black, m- most people are now now are too young to know this. But if you call somebody black, I'm talking about you, you know, you could be black, <laughs> and because that's those would be the people who are, you know, most of us live around other black people. So, so if somebody called you black, that was like an insult, that was like you know, that was like the n word, you know, almost right, and and so. All of these things that were connected to black culture or blackness that people use today um, were sort of symbolized within the context within that that by that word uh, funk and uh, the vernacular expression that it was associated with the emotional fervor, um, the style, uh, you know, the swagger, I guess, that people would use today. Um, but you know these qualities that people you know that had been stigmatized, um, and that's something else to think about. You'd ask me about you know, you know, the whole intellectual thing um one of the important things about funk and what I try to do in this book um is um two things one, um so we tend to think almost solely in terms of racial discrimination as in terms of or how it relates to skin color. And that's certainly one basis, but probably a more fundamental basis has been the cultural component. And um, that was that was pretty much you know related. To our religious practices and, um, you know, and the way we practiced our faith so that, uh, the spirit would come into the body and, um, you know, you expressed that, um, in body movement and dance at, et, et cetera. Well, you know, that was considered, that was considered, um, you know, um, Ignorant and and you know lewd, lascivious people actually said this. I read eyewitness accounts. So there was, you know, the ring shout was lewd. That was a dance that people performed during slavery. This was lewd, lascivious. You know, essentially nasty. So you had all these different stereotypes, and um, and so the implication was that there was that that it was ignorant, right? You know, you know, it's just a bunch of foolishness, and. The, the, the irony is that it was just the opposite, that these were epistemological mechanisms, that if you couldn't feel it, if you didn't move, you couldn't actually play the music or sing the songs the way they were supposed to be sung. You could not, you could not create the desired sound quality. And there's a, <clears throat> there's a lot of evidence for this. Um, but just you know, one of the things that I point out in the book, um, Dizzy Gillespie, the famous trumpet player, um, said that um, that Illinois Jack Cat, I don't know if I'm mispronouncing his name, and um, Thelonious Monk. He said these were two people who knew how to play my music because they knew how to move properly when they played my music. If a guy can't move properly, you know, he, he ain't got the feeling. That's a direct quote. He ain't got the feeling. And so that meant he couldn't play it, right? So you not only had to know the music and know the keys and the notes, you had to move and move properly. You understand? So one last thing about that. So in terms of, you know, funk, the term funk intelligy, you know, uh, George Clinton's term, that's actually a fusion of two words. intelli means, you know, basically the actualization of something. So the ina- the full manifestation or actualization of an idea. So uh, funk intelligy would be the full actualization of funk. And in order to uh, understand and manifest that idea, you you got to dance. You got to it's something with the body. So that's what he means when, when he says we doing it in three d. That's that's directly that cuts directly against the basic presumptions of of Western society, of Western you know much Western right. philosophy.
1: Exactly. It has to be, ta- you almost, like, the sanctity of emotion that comes from the experience of a people. And you see that there's a historical continuum of that. You see that in gospel music. You certainly see it in jazz, with jazz improvisation, right? And it's will change it. The changing saying, we will change it again because you cannot know this. Um, to know this is to know our souls, really. And without this piece, and it becomes a way, I think, to sort of, Um, claim ownership, right? Because that, it's like you said, to move the body. This is a part of who we are as a people. And um, so tell us some more about George Clinton's role here. And um, I know your discussion of uh, George Clinton and Ishmael Reed and uh, that point where he says, you know, read this, have you ever read this, you know, um, particularly piece? Yeah, right.
0: I think, yeah so I think that the what the major so I, I'll there'll be a little bit more about this in my next book, which will focus on uh you know on, on literature but uh more so there's literature here, but I use it more so as historical reference but I think the the tie or the connection between those two um artists is is a, is a direct, um, has to do with epistemology. And so here's what I'll say to that, right? I've talked a little bit about, you know, uh, funk and epistemology. Um, so, so today there's a great deal of emphasis on the part of, you know, I see it in social media, uh, scholars say it, uh, sometimes I see poets uh, protest, right? Uh, protest music, there's protest this, you know, protest. And and I'm not, not opposed to protest. I actually, you know, uh, was part of a group that confronted David Duke many, many years ago in person. So I, I understand protest, but from a cultural standpoint, that only gets us so far. So here's one way to think about this. Protest is what we oppose. Resistance is what we propose. And that means you have to have, um, that, that means that you have to come up with an alternative. So funk is uh, a viable cultural philosophy that gives us a, um, a different set of values, a different viewpoint, different attitude, different aesthetic, um, a different ethos, ontology, and epistemology. Right? It, it, it's, it's, the word funk means integrity, honesty at one's deepest emotion. So that's diametrically opposed to deceit. And evil, which is essentially what we have right now in power, right? Deceit see and, and evil go right, go hand in hand. So, you know, just to give people, you know, a, a really clear, obvious kind of contrast in terms of the political imp- implications. So, so I think that's at the core of you know that connection between Reid and 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 Clinton. Mm-hmm.
1: Tell us some more about the women and the role that women play in the history of, uh, of funk music and culture. Well, let's
0: see. Uh, a lot of women. And I think mm-hmm. funk, because it was so contrarian, you know, re- rebellious, you know, just for the funk of it, so to speak, um, it attracted, you know, uh, a lot of women artists. So you had uh, Cynthia Robinson play trumpet, um, and, uh, Rose Stone played, um, uh, played keyboards in, in, and fl- sl- Family Stone. Um, this was almost unheard of. You didn't see women, uh, instrumentalists, um, in rhythm and blues at that time. Betty Davis, uh, Chaka Khan, I, you know, devote, uh, chapters to Betty Davis and Chaka Khan. Uh, Max than played piano, uh, with her husband, Mandre, Um, Let's see. LaBelle, The Pointer Sisters, uh, Parlette, The Brides of Funkenstein, Joyce Baby Jean Kennedy um, with Mother's Finest, Patrice Chocolate Banks uh, with Graham Central Station, uh, Climax, um, all the men all pause. You, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that, that a lot of uh you could even there's all. Let's see, uh Sheila E., Tina Marie. Um, you could even argue police, uh, Patrice Russian as jazz funk, maybe. Um, but there were a lot of women mm-hmm. in in funk.
1: So tell us about this phrase "organic intellectual." You use it in reference to a uh, Gil Scott Heron, and um. Tell us maybe how this uh, what what do you mean by this label and how it applies to Heron? Okay,
0: well, briefly, you know, I, I I mean that okay. Generally in the book, I'm talking about um, the people who are creating music and their process. So a process that they're learning in um, what um, musician and musicologist Guthrie, Guthrie Ramsey calls um, community theaters, meaning living rooms, basements, uh, churches, community centers, etc. So there's certain ideas, there's certain ways of, of playing, there's certain methods and certain objectives and criteria um, that they learn apart from, um, you know, uh, a university or a conservatory, et cetera. So that's what I mean generally. But when you talk about Gil Scott Heron, I mean, and someone could say, well, you know, he doesn't really fit the traditional notion of the organic intellectual because he did get uh, a master's degree in, in creative writing. But his style, he calls himself a, blues, a bluesician or called himself. So he was really grounded in black vernacular culture. Those were his standards. He would use, and he's different from people today in that in that regard. So he could go he went to school and he would learn these different things. but he applied these concepts within the context of how to better reach black people. So he was really, and he, he, read, um, he read immensely. He, he knew, um, he, he read political thinkers, not just, you know, a religious text here or there, or he had published two novels before he was 23 years old and then decided to, to, um, to reach people, you know, um, or that he could reach more Black folk uh, through, um, through songs and, 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 and poetry through recordings. But the other part about him, maybe the best way to think of this is uh, because he, he was someone, people call, talk now about calling something out. Gil Scott Heron would explain something to you. He would explain why this was this way, and it made sense. And um, and he used humor, you you know. So, and I think of people today, you know. Um, I, I don't. I can't think of any of the of the comics who are actually on the scene right now, who are funnier than he was. He would have people cracking up. But this was something that he learned, you know, in the neighborhoods. It's not something he went to school for, you know. So maybe in that way, in terms of, you know, to answer your question.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting how um, you mentioned comics today who are known to sing and perform. And you would think somebody like Jimmy Fallon created the performance comic poet. But that's not the case. That comes out of the Black arts movement tradition.
0: Yeah, actually, interesting you say that. So, so Richard Pryor was a great singer. Um, and before Pryor, he was really, you know, you know probably certainly one of the greatest uh, comics. Although, you know, in some of his views now, you know, we understand some of the contradictions in terms of, you know, Somophobia. But before him, Burt um, Bert Williams. Um, now I never I never saw Bert Williams, but I'm told that he was even better than prior. And he could do it all, you know, sing, dance, all of that, right? So yeah, so I again, but I think you know, what this particular logic explains is why we tend to gravitate um toward performance why we tend to express our most profound ideas in dynamic form rather than just a footnote so it 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 calls into question the presumption that that all knowledge can be measured or documented within um academic form and obviously the irony is that I'm writing in an academic form, but, you know, um, but I think that's really it that, you know, and the implications are that, um, you know, we might actually do uh, find a better and more effective way of of teaching our young people uh, subjects like science, um, mathematics, or what have you, um, if we were to embrace the reality of the kinetic aesthetic uh, that, you know, so many of us, uh, uh, you know, uh, are sort of uh, familiar with, you know, and conversant with.
1: I agree. And I think even in um, so um, this idea of multiple intelligence theory is saying just that people learn in different ways. And um, we have to tap into that as educators, we have to figure out uh, what type of learner or students are. So I think like you said, these poets and writers of the BAM era and beyond are using their music to teach and produce knowledge um, beyond their, their their audience. So I, I can definitely agree with that. So, uh, Dr. Bolin, we're sort of getting ready to wrap things up. So I want to leave some time for you to tell us about uh, what's next for you in terms of your current and future research plans. <laughs> Well, thanks
0: um well I actually you know i I envision this book as a real big book so um and publishers don't publish big, big well all publishers don't publish big books anymore so um, so i, I, I was, i've I've envisioned funk as an aesthetic for quite some time so the, some the next book, what I'm working on now, is uh, funk aesthetic in African American literature? So, um, you know, I will. Um, I'm writing about uh, various writers and fiction, uh, poetry, and um, how their works interface with, you know, various you know musicians and um, the concept of funk. So it'll be a, a you know. Um, in some ways, somewhat similar to uh, my very first book, Afro Blue, uh, which is what I thought I was going to write this time. But, you know, in, in that book, when I wrote that book, there were all kinds of uh, material for blues and jazz. So all I had to do was apply those. And when I started writing about funk, there really wasn't a whole lot of material. So, um, so, yeah, so I had to actually create that. Um, and so now I can go back um, and apply some of these things to um, to some of the writers and, um, and visual art, you know. So that's the next book, or at least one of the next. I'm also working on, um, I guess, in a, a kind of um, – kind of a um, – I don't know if they're they're not memoirs, but, you know, autobiographical essays um, that I started during COVID because I realized that the academic form, um, it was just, you know, when when the pandemic hit, um, I just had all these different feelings and memories that came back and I couldn't engage any of those. I couldn't, you know, the academic form just wasn't. Um, it didn't fit and so i was i've been very productive so i've got another another kind of book i don't know what that's going to be called um but um or you know what what it, what you you know a term for it um but you know i was around artists who actually were able to pinpoint you know the kind of politics or political trajectory that led to what we're experiencing now, and I really don't—I really haven't seen a lot of people, you know, um, talk about it in ways that were meaningful. So, um, so, so that's what I've been dealing with, um, you know, in the last uh, few months, and so that's going to be something I'm working on too.
1: Sounds like uh, fascinating projects, and we look forward to reading your your new books coming out. And, uh, well, Dr. Bolden, we have taken up enough of your time this afternoon, but I wanted to thank you for participating in this interview about your important book, Groove Theory, The Blues Foundation of Funk.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: You are welcome.